I recognize that every Sunday is a little different in terms of who is able to make it. And uh, so for the past two Sundays, I've shared this thought before we've gotten to the message. And I want to share it with you again today, uh, just for those of you who maybe have missed it, because I feel it's such an important um, aspect of what we're, what we're aiming for, what we're believing for as we gather every Sunday morning. Uh, so this is something that I began to just reflect on a number of months ago, and I was asking myself the question, you know, what, what, are we, what do we have faith for in our hearts when we're gathering every Sunday? It's not to fill time on a calendar. It's not hopefully just a religious thing where on Sunday you just go to church because it's the right thing to do. I hope it's deeper than that. But as a church family, what, what really are we having faith for? What is it that when we come together, we're just expecting that, that this is going to happen, quote unquote. And so I began to just think about that and I journaled it. I shared it with our leadership uh, a little while ago. And so this is, this is, I think, what perhaps can capture part of what we're believing for. And it's this, it's to prepare a spiritual climate. How many of you know that we're spiritual beings? There's more to us than, you know, muscle and sinew and flesh. To prepare a spiritual climate through prayer and worship in song, directing our hearts to God in song, and the preaching of God's word where the power of God's spirit can flow freely, where he has access to do in us what he wants to do without hindrance. Uh, In this spiritual climate, barriers are removed Boy, we bring barriers uh, to our gatherings sometimes, don't we? Inward barriers, where perhaps we are just distracted by a, a heavy burden we're carrying. Or perhaps we're, we're just getting a bit cold toward the things of God, and, and God wants to stir us again and draw us back to Him. So in this spiritual climate of faith and of love and of hope in what God can do, barriers are removed and people receive the ministry of God's Spirit easily. In other words those barriers begin to diminish as we take time to worship God and turn our hearts toward Him, then He has greater access to your heart in in terms of what He wants to do in your life. And so this is, I believe, what we can really believe for when we gather together. Hearts are soft and responsive. Some of those barriers that we've brought with us just begin to lose their influence and we begin to open up to God. Spiritual eyes are opened and ears hear God's voice clearly. And here's the result. The result is that God is glorified, that we come away thinking, God, and knowing, God, you've done what only you can do. And people experience healing and wholeness and deliverance and freedom. Because I I believe that that's the heart of God. That when we gather, that we are to be a, a, a community of faith, not faith in our own faith. How many of you have many times thought, man, I'm not, I'm not a, a spiritual giant like I read about, or I don't, I'm not a, a person with great faith like I read about? Can I just encourage you today? Your faith is not to be in your own faith. That leads to pride. Your faith is to be in God and what he can do. And so when you come and say, God, I'm feeling weak today, and I'm feeling far from you, and perhaps I've failed again this week, and I'm feeling like I just need a a, a cleansing, I need to be drawn near to you again, your faith is not in your own faith to bring you there. It's simply in starting and saying, God, I believe that you can do what only you can do. And so in this climate where we're coming expecting, this is what I believe, it's that God can just do in greater ways what he wants to do in your life and in mine. And so periodically, I think we need to come back to this thought again. So here's what it means for you. Would you join me in just believing for this? And as you're gathering as a church family, as we gather every Sunday, would you come with a heart that says, God, my faith is in you and in what you can do. 
and that this would be a climate where whatever barriers we bring would just begin to diminish. And when people come, you know, like ourselves that have wounds and that are broken, that, that need to hear God's voice in their circumstance, that this is a place where they can find the presence of God. This is a place where they can find life change because God is at work in their hearts. And so church, I believe this is something that we can have faith for and um, that we can set our sights on because I believe it's God's heart. He wants to do that uh, in our gathering and not just here, wherever people gather in the name of Jesus. And so this morning, I want to just talk to you for a few moments about, oh, the title of my thought today is The Dash. How many of you have been to, at Judges 13, you can turn there if you want. How many of you have been to a funeral and there's a poem that's been read by this title, The Dash? Some of you have. I think I may have used this at a funeral before. Uh, This was a poem that was written by uh, a woman who was uh, working in a high-pressure environment in the executive world. I'm not sure what her role was, but she began to observe um, that in this, this work environment, she thought, you know, there's so much about making a living, about the bottom line, about setting, you know, more production goals, and there's such a high-pressure environment, and she was realizing that people really aren't living life. They're just trying to make a living, and, and, and the focus just became all about, about the bottom line. And so she sat down and she wrote this poem. I'm going to read it for you, because we don't need to be at a funeral. We don't need to wait then to consider what she's bringing us to. She said, I read of a man who stood to speak at the funeral of a friend. He referred to the dates on the tombstone from beginning to the end. He noted that first came the date of birth and spoke of the following date with tears, but he said what mattered most of all was the dash between those years. For that dash represents all the time they spent alive on earth. And not only those who love them know what, little line, what that little line is worth. For it matters not how much we own, the cars, the house, the cash. What matters is how we live and love and how we spend our dash. So think about this long and hard. Are there things you'd like to change? For you never know how much time is left that still can be rearranged. To be less quick to anger, to show appreciation more, and love the people in our lives like we've never loved before. If we treat each other with respect and more often wear a smile, remembering that this special dash might only last a little while. So when your eulogy is being read, with your life's actions to rehash, Would you be proud of the things they say about how you lived your dash? It's good, isn't it? It's a reminder that, you know, when you walk through a a graveyard, you do see that, you see the arrivals date, and you all have an arrivals date, and then you see the departure date, and in between is that dash. And it's simply a reminder today that these are these are, this is the substance of life to come back to this question sometimes and to ask myself the question, is there something that I would like to change? How am I living my dash? How am I um, using the life that God has given me? And, and am I considering that important question in the midst of the busyness and, and the pressures of life? 
How is it that I am to live my dash so that when my day of departure comes, that I've left behind some goodness in people's lives because I've, I've followed uh, that path that God has for me? So the, the story that we're going to read in Scripture today, if you have your Bibles and they're open to Judges chapter 13, we're going to read a little bit about a, a guy named Samson. If you've grown up in church or heard some um, of the accounts of Scripture, you would know that name, and you'd probably know him from his physical strength, because that's often what we come to. But I want to talk a little bit about his dash, and about some moments where he began to experience God speaking to him about how he was going to live his life. And so I'm going to begin uh, reading from Judges chapter 13. I'm going to start at verse number 1, and I'm going to read down to about verse 8, and then I'll skip over and read verse 25. So follow along, or if you'd like to just listen, that's fine as well. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines, their enemies, for 40 years. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites, he had a wife who was sterile and remained childless. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are sterile and childless, but you are going to conceive and have a son. There's some good news that's coming to her. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean, because you will conceive and give birth to a son. No razor may be used on his head, because the boy is to be a Nazarite, set apart to God from birth, And he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. The purpose of this really was just, again, to to have some outward reminders that you you were setting yourself apart for God. And so, what would happen then is that there were some very visible differences that set you apart from others as well. Imagine Samson when he was growing up, and, uh, you know, as he grew older... um, he might have got the question, Samson, why is your hair so long? Why don't you cut your hair? Well, it's because I've taken a Nazarite vow, and, and it's just symbolic of the fact that I am set apart for God. Well, Samson, you know, don't you want some, some juice with your meal? You know, in that culture where sometimes water was scarce, they often re- relied on, on grape juice and other um, things from the vineyard. And and so, again, Samson's answer would be, well, I've, I've set that aside because it's a reminder to me that my life is to be set apart for God. And so there was a visible difference. And one of the things that I want to just um, really help us to understand, and this relates to us as well, is that to be set apart meant that there was a discernible difference. To, to be set apart for Samson, this was an outward thing, but it meant that there was a discernible difference. You know, it would be a little bit hard for Samson not to kind of stick out in certain circumstances or in certain groups of people or in certain settings where what he, was, what he had set aside would make him discernibly different from those uh, who were just part of the general population. Samson uh, would have heard many times from his parents, Samson, the reason why you're doing this is because God has set you aside for his purpose. And so there's a discernible difference. To be set apart means there's a discernible difference. 
You know, this Old Testament concept that we find in this Nazarite vow, it also has a New Testament parallel. And we find this in Romans chapter 12. And this is where it just begins to relate to us. And, and, you know, what does this really mean for you and I? Well, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, Paul is saying this. He says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, which is just another name for the church, those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, In view of God's mercy, because God has done so much for us, and he's merciful and he's gracious, here's what we should do. We are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, This is your spiritual act of worship. And when he says offering our bodies as living sacrifices, he's he's actually reminding them that the sacrificial system where they'd have to go to the temple and an animal would be sacrificed in order to bring temporary cleansing for their sin, that was no longer longer, uh, God's path for them and for you and I. But it was by coming to God and saying, God, I want to offer you my life. God, I want to walk in relationship with you. I, I want to be restored to relationship with you, God. And then I want every day of my life to be lived with that posture that, God, my life is for you and it's about you. And so he says, offer your body as living sacrifices. And holy and pleasing to God, this is your spiritual act of worship. And then he says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is his good and his pleasing and his perfect will. And so what what Paul is beginning to point us to is just that thought again that there is to be a discernible difference in our lives as a result of committing our lives to God and allowing him to begin to do a work in our lives. There is to be a discernible difference. That when people see our lives, there's a question mark that begins to form because there's something different. And instead of being conformed to the patterns of the world that are offered to us, there's something that begins to happen in us that is more reflected in this word transformed. That there is an inward transformation that begins to lead to a discernible difference in our lives. How many of you remember watching Sesame Street back in the day when it was, you know, kind of appropriate to watch? And um, Cookie Monster, what a great character. There's this one scene where he's trying to get us, you know, get this um, concept across that there's something different about one plate. There's four plates in front of him. And on three of the plates, there's two cookies. And on the fourth plate, there's three cookies. And there's this little rhyme, right? This little song that he begins to sing. And, and, and the, you know, the thought is, which one of these is different? Which one of these is not like the other? And the fact of the matter is that that's a question that the answer to us as, as those who serve God and simply rely on him to change us inwardly is that there should be a discernible difference. Your walk with God, your faith that in his ability to change you, that should really reflect in a way that makes us different. Not because we're perfect, not because we can just muscle up and, and because we're, you know, it's, it's our own effort, but it's God working in us. And so he talks about the forces that are competing for our attention and our loyalty. And the question is, will we be conformed by the world around us or will we allow ourselves to be transformed by God? Is there or will there be a discernible difference in your life 
Or will we be indistinguishable from those who simply decide to follow their own path and to make their own way apart from God? That, that word that he, that he says, you know, he, he says this world, don't be conformed, don't be pressed into the mold of this world. And there's this tremendous pressure for us to be pressed into the mold of the age in which we live. And, and that word, world, actually can be translated, don't, you know, he says, don't be conformed uh, to, you know, the, the manner or the pattern of this age. And it really is a term that, that helps us to understand, you know, our battle is not against people, right? The enemy is not people. We are broken just like anyone else, and yet we found a message of God's love, and we're walking that out. We're just simply making our lives accessible to God. So can we be very clear today that when he talks about the world, it's not people. Boy, can we ever get that wrong sometimes? Where we begin to think it's people, that the enemy is, is people that are not serving God. No. Please allow God to begin to change your thinking if that's how it's begun to look in your mind. And so he's, what is he talking about when he says the world? Well, the world is, is really this age that we live in. We live in this slice of history, and part of the age in which we live in, there's, there's thoughts and opinions, there's ways of thinking. And if we want to just take another step back, there's also a spiritual and moral climate in which we live. And so what he's saying is, in this spiritual and moral climate, in, in, in the age in which we happen to live, we're in the year 2020, don't allow the, you know, the, the things of this age, the ways of thinking that are apart from God's plan, don't begin to allow those things to pressure you into that mold. Don't be conformed to the spiritual climate of our age and to the things that are underpinning the ways of thinking that we see in the age in which we live. And so... The question is, what is the spiritual and moral atmosphere of the age in which we live? And are we aware of the things that are not honoring of God? Are we able to discern the parts of the age in which we live that are contrary to God's design and contrary to his heart? Can we discern that or have we simply become indistinguishable from those who have been conformed to the age in which we live? And so Paul is reminding us Resist being shaped into the mold of this age. And it can happen so subtly, can it? Where all of a sudden we realize there's really no discernible difference in my life. And there should be if I'm surrendered to God. It can happen so subtly. I'm not sure how many of you saw an article in, in, in a local paper over the past few weeks of the Berries Bay Rink. They had to shut it down because there was some carbon monoxide poisoning after a weekend of, uh, of hockey. Well, we happened to be there, and Emmanuel was playing uh, in a tournament that day. And, um, and so I, he said to me after the first game, he said, Dad, I'm so tired, and I can't get my legs to work the way I want them to work. Like, I, I'm just so tired. I, I skate, you know, one length of the rink, and I, I'm, like, asking to go off. And he said, I can't figure out what's going on. You know, had, we'd got him to bed early the night before, and, you know, all the things you need to do to try to get ready for, uh, for a busy day. And then game two, he was a little bit better. Game three, he was a little bit better. But he never really fully recovered to the point where he normally he felt normal. And, and we found out when we got home, we got a, you know, we got a, a notification from uh, Barry's Bay saying, uh, if you display these symptoms, you need to get to emergency. 
and we kind of monitored Emmanuel, and um, he had actually gone out to the van to have a nap between a few of his games, so he had got some fresh air, and I think that helped. But carbon monoxide, as you know, is invisible, right? You can't smell it. <laughs> you can't taste it. We had no idea this was happening. There's 42 people that ended up having to emerge to get some help for this. And I was thinking about this idea that, you know, they're, they're invisible forces in a sense that really are, are shaping us into a mold that they, that they want us to be in. There's an enemy of our souls that, that is constantly trying to distract us away from the transformation that God can bring us. And he's trying to, you know, bring us along or, or you know, push us over to this place in our lives where we're just being conformed to the world, to the age in which we live. And it can happen so subtly that we don't even realize that we're not living a life of transformation, but really we're just being conformed to the age in which we live. And it's almost as if the Spirit of God and the Word of God act like carbon monoxide detectors spiritually in our lives, right? Where I'm so thankful that Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you orphans, but I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God is the Spirit of wisdom and revelation. He's the Spirit of truth. And so what we can know is this, that the very presence of God through His Spirit can help us to keep from being conformed can help us to live lives that actually are different from, from the spirit of our age in a way that people begin to see a discernible difference in us. And they begin to wonder, what is it that's different about you? And as we spend time in, in the truth of God's word and as we open our hearts to the spirit of God and what he wants to do in us and as we pray for discernment, I believe that we can live lives that are lives that reflect the transformative work that only God can do in us. Or... We can live a life that just becomes conformed to, the, to the, the age in which we live and there's no longer any discernible difference in our lives. The message puts it this way. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. You know, not every aspect of culture is wrong, of course, right? There's some beautiful parts of culture and you know, A, sorry, I apologize, you know, I'm Canadian. I mean, there's some things about culture that aren't bad. But there's also aspects of culture that are not morally neutral. And so what we're reminded of is, listen, those parts of culture that we need to say, that's not who I am. That's not who God's called me to be. That's not how I'm going to live my life. God, help me to be transformed so that there's some discernible differences in my life instead of just becoming conformed to the, the spirit of the age. And so we are, we are to be set apart just as Samson, from the very young age uh, of his life, he began to hear this over and over again. Samson, your life is for God. You're to be set apart. There's a discernible difference in your life. Yes, it's going to be hard sometimes. Yes, you're going to get some questions that are uncomfortable. Yes, you might get rejected from, certain, from the crowd that's going a certain direction. But Samson, remember, your life is set apart for God. And that's why there's a discernible difference. Why? Because God had called Samson to something. And unless Samson was willing to follow God's path and be different in some ways, he would not be able to accomplish what God had called him to accomplish. And so for us, it means having an inward transformation that begins to lead to a difference in our attitudes, in our actions, in our decisions, in how we live life. There is to be a difference in us as we allow God to do his work. And so when, how, does this, how does this look in our lives? Well, I think 
living a life with a discernible difference begins here. And Scripture reminds us, tells us this in 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts, it's kind of the core of who you are, in your hearts, in that deep place, set apart Christ as Lord. And always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asked you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. I love this thought that comes from the scripture that if we are genuinely setting God or Jesus apart in our hearts as Lord, in other words, if we are saying, Jesus, my life is surrendered to you and I'm giving ownership of my life to you, I want to follow God's plan for my life. If we are genuinely doing that, then the assumption is there's going to be some questions. If you are living a life of transformation, and if there is a discernible difference in your life, then get ready. Be prepared. Because people are going to start to ask you, what is different? There's something about you that's different. I'm just curious. What is it? If we're not living a life of surrender to God, if we really haven't settled this question in our minds, Jesus, are you really Lord of my life or not? In other words, have I really surrendered my life to you? And if we're not living a surrendered life, then we may not be getting very many questions. Because there may be very little discernible difference in the way that we live our life. And you know, the sad thing is, if, if there's no discernible difference, we have nothing to offer. We just have more of the same, Right? And so God calls us. He calls us to a life of transformation. This is inward, folks. This is not about the style of clothing that you wear, or whether you came to church with the three-piece suit on today. This is not outward. Although Scripture does have something to say about how we are to clothe ourselves. We're not to be dressing in a way that leads others into temptation, or we're not to be looking at the outward to try to project an image. But this is, this is a transformation that begins to happen in our lives. You know, that word Lord is the word kurios, and it means someone exercising ownership rights. This is not the language of our culture. The language of our culture is this. You are your own master. You create your own destiny. You do what you want to do. And you can invite God out of your life because you can go your own way. And so this word Lord, it, it, it affirms that, that there's a surrendered posture before God, saying, God, I want to go your direction. And I want you to be Lord in the sense that I've surrendered my life to you. And I've invited you into my life. It also reminds us that Jesus is the Son of God. He wasn't just another human being. He wasn't just a good prophet that had some really nice things to say, but he was the sinless son of God. And so we find this in Philippians 2, 9 9 to 11, this idea that one day, whether or not we choose to serve Christ on this earth, one day we will acknowledge him as Lord. We will acknowledge that he's the son of God. Scripture says, God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So not only does the Lord remind us that we are to be, you know, when we say, Jesus, I want to make you Lord of my life, it's this acknowledgement, I want to surrender my life to you so that you can begin to transform me inwardly, but it's also an acknowledgement that Jesus, you're just not another good guy. 
You know, what a, what a weak term. Oh, he's just a nice guy. No. <laughs> In fact, he was the son of God. And one day, when we step from this life into the next, whether or not we acknowledge that today in this life, we'll acknowledge it in eternity because that's who he is. He's the Lord of lords. He's the Son of God. And so it's a reminder to us that, that Jesus, is, Jesus is Lord and he is the Son of God. We have to come to this moment of personal decision to say, you know, will I... Will I actually surrender my life to God or not? Will I actually put my faith in what Jesus has done for me? Or will I put my faith in other things? And so Romans 10.9 says that if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he is the Son of God who came and lived a sinless life, who on the cross absorbed your sin and my sin and dealt with it so that there's no barrier anymore between us and God through what Jesus has done, if you confess that he's Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And that's the hope of the gospel. It's a moment of faith, putting our faith in what Jesus has done for us. That is what begins us on a new trajectory in life. That is what allows us once again to step into a reconciled relationship with God because that barrier of sin has been dealt with. And apart from Jesus, your sin is still a barrier between you and God. Apart from Jesus, you cannot step into eternity and stand before God and say, God, it's, my, it's this list of good things that I've done that enables me to stand before a holy God. No, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. But if you never make a decision to surrender your life to Jesus, then what you're relying on is your own goodness. And so there's a moment of decision that we are called to. There's a step of faith and so Peter says, in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Set apart Christ as Lord. And then get ready because there's going to be some questions. Because there's going to be some transformation that begins to happen in our lives in a way that allows us to live a life that's discernibly different from the life that we once lived. And then the second part of what we can learn from Samson's life uh, is that Samson needed to know for himself what God's plan was for his life. He needed to experience God speaking to him. You see, all of his life growing up, he would have heard his mom say it over and over, you're set apart for God, you're set apart for God, God has a plan for your life. But there's a moment where Samson needed to know that for himself. There was a moment where Samson had a decision and God began to stir him and began to put in his heart the plan that God had for him. And it's the same for you and I today. You know, it's not enough just to come and sit in a church service and to hear this thought that God has a plan for you. No, there's a moment where you need to grab a hold of that for yourself and say, God, I believe that that is true and I'm going to begin to grab a hold of the things of God for myself. I'm going to begin to reach out to you and say, God, would you stir my heart? Would you stir my heart so that I begin to live differently so that I experience your transformational work in my life so it's not enough to hear it from other people? And Samson needed to have a moment where he began to experience the stirring of God for himself. And it wasn't just a message from the pulpit. It wasn't just a thought from his parents. It was a reality of God beginning to touch his life in a deep way and begin to stir him inwardly. 
And God wants to do the same in our lives. God wants to stir you to begin to help you to understand who he is and what he wants to do in you and how he wants you to be a blessing. He wants to begin to change you inwardly, to transform you so that you're no longer conformed to the image of the age, but there's something you have to offer that's different from what this world has to offer, and it's simply the hope that we have in God's work in our lives and how he can change us inwardly. It's interesting that that word stir means to tap or beat regularly or to be disturbed or to be impelled or urged. You ever been in a really loud atmosphere and you're trying to get someone's attention and you can't, right? You're yelling. Yeah, well, that's not going to happen. And so you walk up to them. What do you do? You tap them on the shoulder, right? And right away, you've got their attention. Well, this word stir means that God's spirit began to tap Samson on the shoulder. That God wanted to get his attention. And not only did God, God want to get his attention, but he wanted to begin to disturb the status quo in Samson's life and begin to impel him or propel him to the things that God had called him to do. We need God's stirring in our hearts. We need God to tap us on the shoulder sometimes because we're just in an environment where we're not hearing God anymore and, and our, our distractions and our busyness and whatever else that we're carrying begins to consume us. And, and every once in a while, we need the Holy Spirit to come and to begin to tap us on the shoulder. And we need God to begin to stir us again and once again begin to call us back to his purposes for our lives. Because we live in an age where there's a lot of pressure to conform and just to blend in, we're called to be transformed. And so the Holy Spirit needed to get Samson's atten attention. And it's interesting that he was in this place called Mahanadan when he, when he began to sense the this, this stirring of God. Actually, Mahanadan is where he grew up. And it's also close to the place where Samson was buried. And so I think this begins to describe the dash. It begins to talk about God speaking to Samson about the purpose of his life and beginning to stir him so that he was no longer content with just being conformed to some other image apart from what God wanted him to be. That Mahanadan actually means camp of Dan, and, and it was actually a camp of training. It was an outpost designed to resist the Philistine incursions into Israel. And so it was really a place of preparation. It was a place of training. And in that place of training and preparation, God begins to speak to Samson. And it probably went a little bit like this, you know, tap, tap, tap. Samson, do you see how the Israelite people are oppressed right now? Do you see how they're subject to their enemies? Samson, I want you to begin to do something about that. Samson, I'm going to use you to begin to bring freedom to people. And this is why I've set you apart this is why I've called you to follow my path and my purpose because there's, there's some things that I'm calling you to do. And so, as we come to a close this morning, God calls us to be set apart from in order to participate in. God calls us to be set apart for Him and to surrender our lives to the Lordship of Jesus because there are some things that he wants us to participate in. You know, I want to I just really encourage you with this thought that consecration or being set apart for God, consecration does not mean isolation. 
And again, sometimes we get those two things mixed up. Consecration does not mean isolation. Can I read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and, and be reminded again of how Jesus lived his life? Boy, did he ever not live a life of isolation. <laughs> he went to where people were needing to experience the touch of God. He went to places where other people said, why are you there, Jesus? He invited people to come and to eat in his home, and people said, why them, Jesus? Don't you know the reputation? And church, consecration does not mean isolation. Jesus, when he was praying to the Father, he said, Father, I'm not asking that you take them, speaking of us, out of the world, but I know that you're sending them into the world just as you sent me into the world. In other words, God has placed us in the midst uh, of, of people that simply need the hope of the gospel. And so our enemy is not people, and in order to be set apart for God, it's set apart for a purpose. It's set apart so that there is something different that we actually have to offer people. Because if we're exactly the same as those around us, we have nothing to offer them. We have no new vision for what life can be. We have no new hope that we can give them. We have no new power that, that we have access to. And I'm talking about the power of God that can actually change us inwardly. And so church, we are called to live in a way that there's a discernible difference. And I wonder today if we just need to say, God, would you once again, would you once again, first of all, put, put a heart within me that beats with the heartbeat of God, that I would love people and that I would be so um, burdened for people to experience the love of God, that I would have such a deep desire that they would find hope, that they would find purpose, that they would understand the purposes of God for their lives. And we can actually not really care that much as long as we're okay. We can get into a place where we don't care much about people around us if we're just being honest today. I've made my peace with God through Jesus. I have a hope of eternity. I'm looking forward to that day when I step into eternity with God. And if truth be told, I don't care all that much about the people around me because I'm good. And so perhaps... We need to say, Holy Spirit, Spirit of God, I need you to begin to tap me on the shoulder. I need to begin to tap, you begin to tap me on the shoulder so that I would begin to once again live out your purposes for my life. I need to ask myself the question, is there any discernible difference in my life and in my attitudes and in my choices and in my decisions? Is there any discernible difference because of God's work in me or is there not? And if not, God, would you change my heart? Would you begin to transform me so that I have a hope, a living hope that I can bring to people around me? And so Samson was set apart, but the Spirit of God needed to stir his heart. We're just going to take a moment to, to pray this morning. I'm going to ask that you would stand with me, and we're going to come to a close. I am so thankful that God is able to bring life change to us. I am so thankful that God begins to do a work in us that's inward in a way that begins to change us, that there's, that there's a discernible difference, that we actually have something to offer people. But I'm also very aware, and I'm, I'm talking to myself this morning as well, 
that there are times where we can begin to get distracted from what God wants to speak to us. There are times, if we're honest, where we have, in some areas of our lives, we've begun to get shaped and pressed into the mold of this age rather than into how God would have us to look. And I just want us to pray this morning before we go. And our prayer simply would be this. That Spirit of God, would you begin to stir me? Would you begin to stir my heart again? Would you begin to clear away some of the clutter so that I can hear you again? Would you begin to soften my heart so that I can begin to once again say, Jesus, I want you to be Lord of my life because I know that it's your path that I want to follow. Perhaps this morning, if you're really honest, you just need to say, Spirit of God, would you begin to burden me again with the love for people? And somehow I've thought, you know, people are the enemy and they're not. I'm not sure what it is for you and I know that the Holy Spirit has this way of speaking, you know, to 130 people individually this morning. My voice is only one voice, but the Spirit of God can speak to you in the way that He needs to, in a way that brings glory to God. And so we're going to pray. We're going to pray. We're just going to say, God, we, we just need to hear from you today. We need you to stir us.